Welcome back to Open Source Startup Podcast. Uh, as usual, this is Tim at Essence VC and our lovely co-host, Robbie from Cowboy Ventures. And we're super excited to have Or, a CEO of Permit.io, which is a full stack permission as a service. So welcome, Or. Thank you. It's great to be here. Excited to do this uh, episode with you. Awesome. We are thrilled to have you on. So why don't we go all the way back to the beginning and you can tell us a bit about how Permit started and also a bit about Open Policy Agent and how those two kind of intertwine. So working on my previous company, Rookout, I ended up rebuilding the access control to our product five times when the company wasn't even three years old. And I just said, that's stupid. I don't want to do it once, let alone five times. And reflecting on it, I realized that building this crap, pardon my French, for thousands of times throughout my career, and again, at no point did I want to, I got together with a good friend of mine, now my co-founder, Asaf. He worked at uh, Facebook, Meta, and he worked there on both their internal developer tools and their uh, internal authorization. And he saw that they've invested a team of 30 people for half a decade to build the level of access control that they have. And they're still building on so we quickly did the math and we realized not only is this an annoying problem now, it's only going to get far worse for everyone down the road, especially when you think about the new users in our applications. So it's no longer just about other humans using our applications. It's AI agents on behalf of AI agents, on behalf of AI agents and somewhere down the line, I hope there's a human, but a full mesh of automation connecting with our applications and that full mesh needs a lot of uh, access control. So yeah, we better get moving on that. In relation to OPA, Open Policy Agent, when we came to build permits, the first thing we did was adopt the current uh, technologies. And the, I think the most important trend and best practice is policy as code. And we started with OPA, with Open Policy Agent. But to use it, we had to create our own open source project, OPAL, Open Policy Administration Layer which makes sure that each policy engine gets the policy and data that it needs in real time. So we used Opal to bring OPA into the application layer. Nowadays, Opal supports multiple policy languages. Another good example is really fresh off the oven, Cedar. It's a new policy language from AWS. And so with uh, Cedar and another open source project that we have, Cedar Agent, which basically enables you to run Cedar like OPA, you can mix and match and you can have a policy decision point with OPA, a policy decision point with Cedar, and you can manage all of them through OPAL. And you can bring policies and data into that and connect it to your app with Permit. And Permit would generate the policies for you. It would write policy as code for you. Yeah, that's that's super amazing. You know, you mentioned that you have to build this five times, right? Even in just one company. I'm sure many, many developers out there have similar experience, right? Everybody has to build a permission service or permission ACL type of, you know, features into everyone's products. But I guess we haven't never really seen a surge of products in this space until probably last few years. Maybe talk about like, why do you think this is the right time to do this sort of product? You know, I think Zero was like the famous company that took authentication right, into an independent company. And I think authorization is certainly the next frontier, so to speak. Just curious what you saw, not just because everybody has rebuilt it, what are some other driving forces around maybe timing or technology that makes this, this is the right time to do this? Yeah, so first of all, as you said, everyone 
has to touch on this. Every application today needs some element of access control. In the end of the day, access control is how you connect people and systems to what you've built. So it's pretty much unavoidable, especially in an interconnected world. And uh, secondly, I'd say it's really the complexity of the, the application itself that is driving this. Back in my day, when I was just an individual contributor engineer just working in a company, I'd still be running our applications on uh, not even a container in the cloud, like a physical machine in our office. And you'd have that contributed to or given to the end customer. We've changed a lot since then. Applications have become more distributed, more complex, more fine-grained. We're running everything with microservices. So the surface area that you need to cover with access control has grown significantly. So the basic need for where you need to have access control has changed dramatically. And the amount of people we need to connect to this. So it's not just the developers building this. Permissions are changing constantly on the fly and product managers, security and compliance, sales engineers, support, professional services, everyone's involved in managing permissions. So you need a way to make this as malleable, as elastic to meet the demands coming in from your customers and from your security and compliance and from your own internal needs. Everyone starts with a basic policy model like admin, not admin. I'll be the admin. And all of you guys, you don't you don't get anything. And then you move to admin, not admin, super admin. And then you move into access control lists. And then you move into RBAC, which is kind of like the bread and butter of the permission space. But even there, you can't stop. You move to ABAC and RBAC and there's constantly more coming from the demands from all of these people. So that pressure of complexity of software, complexity of stakeholders, and complexity of the space itself, that's really what's driving the need here. And Tim, kind of like what you said yourself, this is very much like authentication seven or 10 years ago. If you'd go to a developer back then and tell them, hey, do you want to use authentication as a service? They'll be like, first of all, what the hell did you just say? What, what even is that? And B, do you want me to trust my most critical aspect of my software to some third party? What, what am I, insane? And obviously today it's the reverse. What am I insane to build this sensitive component on my own? And that realization is a baseline that enabled this space. Unless people matured into this understanding with authentication, we couldn't do so with authorization. It's far more deeply embedded and more complex and fine-grained problem. So authentication first in a psychological sense had to come in and allow the market to mature. And secondly, authentication had to come in and create standards that we can build on. Without the maturity of standards like JSON web tokens, it would be very hard to, in a standardized way, to connect identity into permissions. And if you don't have identity, when you're talking about permissions, you don't have anything. It's the fundamental aspect that you need. So that was a prerequisite. So the problem with the complexity of the space has gotten to a point where this can no longer be ignored. And the prerequisites have matured to enable the space to come in. And all these things aligning together enabled authorization to start to mature now. And that's why you are so seeing multiple companies, all of them roughly the same age, roughly the same size, entering this space. And I'm excited about this because it's kind of a tide that floats all boats. While we're competitors, we're all working together on improving the uh, the market and creating the standards that are needed. 
Awesome. Now that it makes a ton of sense. And this is such a huge pain point for so many developers today. I want to talk a bit about some of the choices that you made. So you're working with Open Policy Agent. You built an open source layer. Can you maybe walk us through why was it was important to use Open Policy Agent if you kind of looked at different options of like what to build on top of or what to build with and like how you landed on that? And also just like what the layer that you built is. Opal, uh, Open Policy Administration layer. Yeah. So we initially, when we started, we actually looked at CASBIM which is another policy engine that is quite popular, but it's a very messy project. It's accumulated patchworks throughout time. And while it has a decent community, it doesn't have the consistency that I think a project needs to create the right standards for this new evolving ecosystem. I think the same can be said about another project that I think is great, like Eclo. It has a lot of benefits in the both authentication, identity management, and also to some degree in the authorization space but it's too deeply embedded in the old monolithic world. And it just, it couldn't carry us into where we need to go now. And OPA, Open Policy Agent, was really balanced in the right way. It adopted the right best practices that we believed in, primarily decoupling policy and code, decoupling policy and data, enabling to create layers on top of what you're building and uh, gradually evolve it. And the fact that it was adopted by the CNCF and it was great gaining traction and adoption felt like the like it's a good wagon to latch ourselves onto as we start going this. But from day one, really from the start, we knew that we, it, this can't be a single policy engine thing. I don't know about you, but when I think about developers, I think about a multitude of opinions. Developers really want to use the right tool for the right task. And they're polyglot by nature. Just think about all the flame wars between PHP, Java, Python, Go, Rust. Everyone has a favorite and has a, an opinion about all of the rest. So it, it was very apparent to us that the same thing would apply here. You want different policy languages and different policy engines for the different situation and tasks you're solving. Even to take this to the extreme, you can compare policy as graph. Things like Google Zanzibar derivatives like uh, SpiceDB or OpenFGA or Orikido, uh, in contrast to the um, policy as code, the solutions like OPA, Cedar, Caspian, also, et cetera. So those are very different and they have complementary pros and cons. So one gives you great complexity in writing the policy, but limitations in how you create consistency over data. And the other one is the exact opposite. So we knew that we wanted to support different policy languages and different policy schemas. And we knew that we wanted to create a bridge point that will allow people to switch between them and also interlock them, have them work together. So for example, with Opal, which is basically a lightweight pop-sub channel that creates updates for policy and data, you can have different policy engines subscribe to the policy and data that they need. And they can, for example, subscribe to something like a Zanzibar solution or like SpiceDB, which the authors of it literally describe it as a permissions database. So you have a, this opinionated with the right affinity data source on one side, and you have a edge component on the other side that can perform quickly. And you can have Opal in between fetching the relevant components and bringing it to the edge into the application per se as it's needed. 
And so that's the that's the world or standard that we imagined with Opal. The ability to switch between policy engines, switch between data sources, and have everything work in a real-time event-driven fashion. Yeah, I think that's pretty fascinating because if you look at various players that are even in this sort of authorization space, everyone has a different stance of what they are building and what they choose, which path. But it sounds like you're actually choosing you're not choosing either side. Like, I'm going to support them all. And I have a, a layer of sets on top. I think we'll definitely want to get to that aspects of it. But I want to also ask you about the full stack permissioning as a service. Like this idea of a full stack. What, what does that mean being full stack? We know a full stack engineer does front end and back end. And so is, yeah. this, is this a similar meaning here? Like I can do front end permissioning UI as well as having the back end taking care of me? Like, is that what full stack means? Or So full stack means that you're able to apply the permission aspects that you need across your stack. And it doesn't just mean just the policy engine, just the infrastructure component or just the APIs that you need to connect this to your software, or just the control plane to manage this. It also means the interfaces and experiences that people would need to connect to on top of this. It will also mean the feature toggling aspect that you need as part of the front end to adjust it to what the authorization there says. And it means being able to bring in the authorization state into the front end application as well in a secure fashion. So we try to solve all of these. And actually, that's the, what we focus on. So, and that kind of actually connects to your first question. So we're not trying to be the right infrastructure component. We are adopting the right infrastructure components as the market evolves them. We just created a bridge component that allows us to work with them as they evolve. And uh, we're trying not to be too opinionated there. Whichever policy engine wins, we'd love to work with it. It's not what we are building. We're building the layer on top the gluing layer on top and the interfaces on top, most importantly. And those interfaces are what, what I refer to with full stack permissions as a service. So in Permit, we have multiple components that are connected to that. One that really, I think, explains this are uh, the interfaces themselves and specifically permit elements. Permit elements, if you may be familiar with Stripe elements, are ready to be embedded components that implement access control for you. I'll, and uh, these are things that you've seen and used in different applications multiple times, billions of times maybe even. And the sad fact is every time you used one, some poor schlep of a developer had to create them from scratch. So things like user management with the ability to assign roles, API key management, secrets management, audit logs, invites, approval flows, emergency access, audit logs, audit logs for yourself, audit logs for your end customers, behavioral analytics, uh, and this list just goes on and on and on. So we provide these ready-made React components that you can just throw in. So you don't have to build a scrap. You can just check it and, and move to focus on your core aspects. And I think without providing these elements, you're, we're still in the situation that developers are constantly rebuilding this. So permit elements is one aspect. The back office elements, for example, the policy editor, it's a low-code, no-code interface that I'd like to say a monkey can use or even a product manager if they're smart enough. And it generates policy as code for you, pushes it into Git. But it's a critical interface. It's part of the stack that your own stakeholders need in order to work on this problem. 
And I kind of mentioned the feature toggling. So feature toggling or feature flagging, that's a whole category by itself, but it needs to work. It needs to be informed by the authorization there. By the way, there we have another open source project called Optoggles. So Optoggles listens in to events coming in from Opal and then queries the policy engine to deduce the new feature flags and loads them into the feature flagging solution, like launch darkly or unleash or whatever you'd be working with. Um, and these different components across the stack and mainly the interfaces to manage them is what I think of when I say uh, full stack permissions. Awesome. And one of the things I noticed on your site is you have some very impressive like users and customer quotes already. And I think one of the toughest things for companies in this space generally is figuring out where to enter because usually for bigger companies, they'll have a solution, even if it's not great already. And if you don't have something that kind of connects with what is already existing, like it's just hard to find an entry point. And it feels like you found a really good one. Mm -hmm. I just wonder if there were learnings that you had from Rookout about like just finding the right wedge or entry point, because it really does feel like you found one in a space where a lot of founders have struggled to find that. Yeah, you're touching on a very sensitive point. So with Rookout, I ended up somewhat against my will, somewhat because of my lack of understanding. I ended up building a enterprise top-down sales motion for developers, which uh, I like the vocabulary to describe how bad of an idea that is. If there's one thing developers hate is being told by their managers which tools to use, which is automatically what you get if you do top-down. If you go to the top of the organization, to the C-level or the VPs or managers and have them push your solution to their organization, you get a ton of friction. And if you go the other way around, you get the exact opposite because developers have the clout, the understanding, and the capability. And nowadays, also the budget to drive tools into their organization. And one of the key things that I've learned is that you need to adjust and pick the right go-to-market strategy to fit your market. Yes, I know it's a, it sounds stupid when you say it like that, but I actually find that a lot of entrepreneurs miss that understanding. A lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand that there's a key difference between product market fit and go-to-market fit. They sound very similar, and they work critically together, but they're dramatically different. And if you don't understand in a fine-grained sense and to the letter, what is each of those and how they align, you're going to have a very bad time building up your business. And the other way around, if you understand your customers, if you understand what they actually want in the product, how they are going to adopt the product, and how that translates into a wider market motion, you're going to have a much better time. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not going to be an easy time. And doing a startup is never easy unless, I don't know, uh, you're Sam Altman or something like that. And I guess he's struggling to everyone in, you know, in their own uh, category. But if you understand it correctly, you can remove a lot of friction in what you experiment on and how you prioritize how you engage with customers. And uh, as a result of that, I'm basically a product-led growth fanatic. I'm a really strong believer in it, uh, especially when it comes to developers. And I'm fortunate enough to say that I see it work on a daily basis. I see, for example, we have zero touch paying Fortune 10 customer. And for a lot of people, that sounds nonsensical. How can you sell to a Fortune 10 company without a huge sales operation? By the way, I don't have, at this point in time, Permit.io doesn't have a single salesperson. 
I'm the salesperson, the company, and I barely count. But because we have aligned with the market, because we understood how developers want to try out this product, how they will push it into their organization, and we've aligned both the product and how we do the go-to-market motion with that, we're able to achieve that. That and also a ton of luck. That's also important to note. But yeah, boiling it down, I think the, one of the key learnings there is understanding the end persona, understand how they connect with the buyers, and understand how that aligns with the product market and the go-to-market. I think it's actually maybe a good segue to talk about Rookout because that was your previous company. And mm-hmm. Rookout, I don't know if you're the first one ever to really talk about life debugger, but definitely one of the very one of the few first ones that are all in the market. Talk a little about what Rookout is. And I'm very curious of what are the key lessons you learned during that journey, because you're definitely an early company in an early category that I think is a super interesting, intriguing product. So what is Rookout and what are some of the key lessons you learned during that time that you also apply to your new company? Yeah, so I started Rookout in late 2016 together with my co-founder, De Liran, also a friend of mine that I met through Intelligence Corps. We both came from a cybersecurity background, and we wanted to bring that into a category that isn't cybersecurity. We kind of got tired of fear, uncertainty, and doubt as a marketing technique, and we wanted to bring something that actually brings value to people and to people that we care about, which is favorite spirits of our developers. And uh, at the time, before that, I was a VP of R&D in a cybersecurity company. And uh, I was really annoyed as we were adopting cloud technologies and containers. I was annoyed working with my engineers and they were telling me, oh, I'm going to finish this feature later today. And then I'll come back and say, I, I wasn't able to finish it because I, I loaded it to the container in the cloud and there it doesn't work. And, and I can't debug it. It's really, it's really annoying. And I'm like, what the fuck? Why is it so hard? These containers were supposed to make it easier for us, not make it harder. What's going on here? And um, we basically thought we wanted to go back to the classic experience of a developer developing locally. Like you run things in your IDE and when things don't work, you set a breakpoint and you see what the hell is going on there. As simple as that. And you don't need to redeploy and you don't need to change the code and you just look at the code. This It's so simple. Why can't I have that? So we tried to reclaim that with, with Rookout. So Rookout is a production debugger solution. It uses hooks in memory to latch onto the uh, execution environment and set what we call non-breaking breakpoints. It's been a while since I did the Rookout pitch. Thank you for, it's rekindling different energies. Within. So you set these non-breaking breakpoints and they are, so you can run them in production without interfering with the application, but you end up seeing what's happening in the code. You see the values of the variables. You can add more log lines. You can add conditional breakpoints. You can collect metrics. You can collect whatever you want, just as if it was running locally, but it's live in production. And this is something that is critical. At the end of the day, most of the friction that we're encountering, especially with the modern development techniques, it happens in production. It doesn't replicate locally. You don't have the scale. You don't have the data. You don't have the layouts to reproduce a lot of the friction points that you have there locally, as opposed to the actual environment in the cloud, especially with the most annoying bugs, like race conditions and Heisen bugs. You are not going to replicate them. So if you want to solve them, at least in a, a time-efficient manner, you want to be able to look into your production with these. And that's what Rookout does. And uh, yeah, it, it created an entire category called production debugging that 
really didn't really exist before. And multiple other companies sprang up and it was kind of funny to hear them say like, hear their pitch. I won't mention specific names, but like I heard them pitching to other people and they were like, yeah, we're like Rookout, but we do it slightly different. And that was kind of cool to be like something someone else compares to or builds their pitch on top of. And yeah, and we, we saw a lot of good reactions with Rookout. In the end of the day, when it works for people, it works super well. Once people are familiar with the product and they have it installed when they need it, it saves so much time that it's it's ridiculous. The trouble that we ran into with Rookout is getting people to use it, to just give it a try. So one of the first problems, and that's something that you don't necessarily think of off the bat, you need it to be installed before you have the problem. But humans being humans, they think about installing it only when they have the problem. But then it's a little too late, right? So a lot of the friction is building that understanding of adopting it in advance so you'll bear the fruits when they when they come. I think if we would have let developers to adopt this in a, kind of a bottom-up approach, product-led growth, there would be more organic adoption and then more organic success scenarios. But with the top-down approach, it really means that only when a manager in the organization was fully able to push it in you see the results kind of come out. And that just creates not as good statistics as you need for this to grow wide and horizontally. I keep reflecting and thinking back to one of our customers, again, I, at Rookup, I won't mention names, but a big enterprise. And uh, we got a buy-in from the highest person in the company. And they have decided this is their project. They have too much cost on logging, too much cost on debugging time. They want to solve this. And they decided this is going to happen. They declare so in front of the entire company. And we're along with them on the ride. We introduce the tool. We do workshops. We train the engineers. We do everything. And then every quarter, there's a status meeting at the office of that uh, a big shop at that company. And he goes, why haven't you deployed Rookout to all of these servers? Why aren't you using it more? And then uh, the cohort of lower degree managers, like the team leads, they start sniveling. Sorry, boss. We went to deploy it, boss. We didn't get into it, boss. Oh, I'm really sorry. And every quarter, the same excuses. And when you kind of investigate in, you see that they were struggling to get their engineers to use it because their engineers were like, I don't know. What, what is this thing? You're, just by the fact that you told me that I should use it, I really don't want to use it now. And so even though you were, there was a lot of pressure being applied from the top. It didn't translate into traction in the organization. Eventually, it kind of worked. After, I think the sales cycle there was like a year and a half, which in entrepreneur terms or startup terms, it's that means really bad, but it, it ended up working. So the technology itself and the value proposition itself stands out. But I think the go-to-market motion was really one of the things that we've missed out on there. Yeah, I think it's such a good learning and one that it, it's so interesting. Whenever you talk to multi-time founders, almost always later on, they talk about the importance of go-to-market and how earlier they probably underestimated that. I'm wondering if there's any other learnings. Like it was before we started recording, we were talking about how similar the websites are in some ways. Like I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of learnings around like content and team hires and things that you're either doing the same or differently this time around based on what happened at Rookout. We'd love to talk through those. Yeah. So you kind of mentioned one thing, like stick to what works. If you have 
templates and methods and team players or agencies or uh, freelancers or people that you know that you can trust and you can bring in quickly, that saves a ton of time. And I think that's one of the, like the network that is optimized for doing a startup. It's kind of like uh, the network for like a neural network for like a machine learning model. When it's optimized to doing a startup, you get a lot better efficiency, a lot better results running this. As opposed to starting from scratch, you're like, hmm, how do I uh, design logos? How do I set up a website? How do I do marketing? What is marketing? <laughs> how do I do sales? How do I build scripts? How do I do budgets? How do I do quotes? How do I do marketing management? There's so many decisions you have to make. And the funny thing is most of them are not important. Just pick something, but you don't even know what to pick from if you're a first-time entrepreneur and you haven't touched on those things. So I think once you have a template, if it's yours or someone else's that you can that you resonate with, just take that template and apply it quickly. There will be enough time and room to iterate and change things and fine-tune them. If you waste time on fine-tuning these things too early, you won't get to the next stage where you actually need to fine-tune the important things. So I think that's another lesson there. You mentioned hiring that really uh, brings up a lot of stuff. I think most importantly is, and maybe something that is counterintuitive is don't hire. Like not everything, not every problem that you have on your desk needs to have someone doing it for multiple reasons. One is you don't actually know who should do it and how they should do it. Especially for technical founders, I think, including myself. Initially, when you look at the concept of like a VP of marketing or a marketing person or a salesperson, they all sound kind of the same. Also, what's the difference between a SDR and BDR and a salesperson? All these annoying people that just need to sell stuff. What's what's the difference? But there's a ton of difference. And also that difference is tactically and specifically different for every company. For every company, for example, you need a very specific sales script. And if you expect, like, especially if, as an engineer, expect, yeah, I take a salesperson, they'll figure out how to sell this. Like, they'll talk to that person and they'll learn and they'll look at analytics and they'll run experiments and they'll figure it out. Salespeople don't do that. Salespeople are like a cat or like a, a lion. They know, they just know how to pounce and they have their one specific technique and that's it. They're not going to try all different things. They just want to get their compensation out. I'm kind of oversimplifying and uh, and also insulting a lot of salespeople as I do that. But um, this is just uh, in the sake of communicating the message. Just want to be clear. But the bottom line here, if you want your salespeople to be successful, you have to understand how you're going to sell it yourself. You have to really understand how the script works. And you need to be able to boil it down to someone that doesn't understand the product at all, especially if it's a technical product. Same goes for marketing, same goes for design, same goes for everything. I interviewed um, Nat Friedman, the, uh, previously the CEO of GitHub. And one of the tidbits that came out of that is he told me that for every marketing website that they do for GitHub, for example, Copilot, or for um, the new kind of uh, subscriptions that you can do in GitHub and stuff like that, and code spaces. So he did the marketing copy for all of them. And he wasn't able to find a single person in all of Microsoft and all of GitHub that can do that copy well enough, that understood the end persona, the customer well enough to do it. 
And I think of that, like, if you can't find that in a f- company with thousands of talented people, what are the odds you'll find it in a tiny startup? And again, so you need to do as an entrepreneur, you need to do a lot of these things yourself to A, understand how complex they are, understand their minute differences, and then be able to communicate them to someone else that is not as talented. And in some cases, you might need to be able to do continue to do them forever. And that's something that you don't necessarily expect because you're like, uh, I'm an entrepreneur, but I have this specific background. I'm a designer. I'm an engineer. I'm a business person. I'll do my own thing. So no, you don't get to do that. You have to understand all those things and see how they align. The best thing that you might get is maybe if your founding team is diverse enough that your skills can complement one another and you can uh, get it to work. But in most cases, you're uh, you're fucked. You're going to do a lot of things you don't want to do. I've recently become a, a parent myself. I have a six-month-old, Ari. And uh, that really taught me that startups and babies are very much alike. First of all, there's a lot of crap that you don't expect and you find yourself handling, sometimes more literal than in other cases, and um, that things grow in ways that you don't expect. And the company or the child, they add capabilities, experiences, ideas, notions that you didn't expect yourself. Sometimes you like them, sometimes you don't. But in all of those cases, you need to make them work with the overall emotion of growth that you're experiencing. Otherwise, everyone's going to have a bad time. And in both cases, that means a lot of crying, both for babies and for startups. Yeah, I love the the jumps all the way to, to parenting. Uh <laughs> Definitely ha- resonates quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> I think what's really intriguing about your workout journey through transition permit, at least for me, looking at it, of course, is really the big switch between like top down to bottom up, right? What are the key lessons you learned already trying to do bottom up? Because I think, of course, having no salespeople, right? You really out there putting out content, you're trying to build the right products for the developers, but I'm sure it's not going to be just like, Overnight, I'm going to be learn everything I know about how to do bottom-up super effectively. I think most people go through a struggle period too, because it's actually much harder than it looks, I realize. What are some of the key lessons you learned? And I'm I'm sure open source is probably part of it, right? Like doing Opal open source is part of the strategy bottom-up. So how do you think about your journey of lessons you learned about how to do bottom-up quite effectively well? So first of all, it's starting by saying that Bottom-up is not like one thing. Like each company's bottom-up would be dramatically different. And uh, even within Permit, I constantly see that the different things that I'm betting on or trying and the forms of different items of content, different forms of distribution, they produce different results than what I've seen for other companies or for other scenarios, even within the same company. So I think one of the lessons there is that you need to iterate and experiment gradually and fuzz out basically this area between product market fit and go-to-market fit. How are you building the right things for your product at the right time and communicating them to the market in the right way that resonates and produces organic growth? And I think that just the sentence that I said now is a mouthful and I think it it would take even a a very sophisticated and smart person uh, quite a while to parse. Because each word there actually contains weeks or if not months of work on different things. But you have to do it and you have to experiment and you have to figure it out. 
Um, but it's good to start with best practices. It's good to start with what works in other companies, other similar companies, and you can save some time on that. And I think it's important to have a core belief and kind of a North Star that aligns you. It's also a lot what you don't do, right? You can't do everything all the time. So you have to have bets, but you want those bets to work within some kind of uh, surface area that aligns for general direction. So you have a general process that you're going through that you can measure and you're not just spraying all over. Uh, so even when you're failing, you're moving somewhere as part of a path that you're uh, constructing or that you're leading. And uh, for us, open source, yeah, is definitely a key part of that. So Opal, I perceive Opal as three things, actually. It's A, maybe primarily, it's content marketing. It just happens to be content that is code. Ironically, or fortunately, that really works well for developers. Like the best kind of content that they like is code. So it actually makes a lot of sense when you think about it that way. The other part of it is community building. Every developer tool product has to have a community to some degree because it's how developers make decisions. It's how developers measure maturity. And it's how developers together actually build things forward, how standards emerge. Sometimes standards are de facto standards, not the standards that someone has put a, a triple E stamp on or something like that. And those require a community. And lastly, it's a way to build the software that you want and open in a way that will resonate with your audience. That's maybe the core thing about open source, but it's not necessarily the most important thing when you're doing a bottom-up motion with open source. But in the end of the day, yes, that's what I think open source is, or at least what open source is for our company. I think as part of that, it's important to differentiate between different open source models. So the classic or the most common open source model that companies use is open core. Open core means that the value proposition of your open source project and the value proposition of your commercial project are the same. And there's a significant overlap in the tax stack that basically creates both of them. I really think that that's a terrible idea nowadays. It used to be a great idea to do open core. When the market was slower and adoption was slower and competitors were slower, doing open core was great because you had time, you gave the project time to grow. Think um, Reddit, think Redis, think uh, MongoDB. You let the project grow as an open source. It grows horizontally with the market and then you harvest it into commercial interactions with the market. Nowadays, or even five years back, you can look at where this model fails dramatically. You can look at examples like Elastic or like Docker. So Docker grew wide with the market, but it moved too quickly for them to actually adopt it into a commercial model. So when they tried to do it, they ended up forcing everything and it all exploded in their faces. I think Docker has kind of mended their ways today, but there was a point where they were close to dying just because they things move too fast for them to actually control. And with Elastic, Elastic literally created a new category with for logging, but everything moved so fast that while they were busy building the open source aspect, other companies like AWS and Logzile and CoreLogix and others came in and consumed the commercial aspect of the market that they created. So I think that open core can still work. And I think it's a very valuable model but it's not as a good default as it used to have been years ago. 
And the model that I think, or at least I'm trying to replace Open Core with is what I call Open Foundation. So the in Open Foundation, the open source project and the commercial product have different value props, but they share a baseline tech stack. Usually it means that the open source project would be an enabler for the commercial product, but they're not the same thing. So this is the case for Opal and Permit. So Opal is an infrastructure component that Permit uses, but it doesn't contain any of the actual things that we bring as part of the commercial value. It doesn't have any of the interfaces. It doesn't have the policy editor. It doesn't have permit elements. It doesn't have all those full stack things that I've mentioned before. They don't exist at all at Opal, but it supports it. It enables permit to grow both in a product market fit perspective and enabling the technology in the right way. And even more importantly, as I described before, in a go-to-market perspective. So that's uh, how I think about like the different open source models. And uh, there are probably even more. And I think, with especially with the emergence of AI and machine learning models and how we perceive machine learning models as open source. So you have the infrastructure for the machine learning model. You have the model itself. You have how you train it. All of these different things would create new alignment points for how you do open source and do go-to-market on top of it. So I think open source is the future. It's, we're definitely going to see more of it. But it's going to look different, especially in the commercialization aspect of it and building companies on top of it as it used to have looked uh, years past. At least that's my perspective and two cents on it. Yeah, and I, I think that's an awesome note to end on because there has been a big shift in just monetization and models for open source companies. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for doing it with us, Or. My pleasure. I had a blast. You asked great questions. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I hope to come back another time.